uh, hear your hearts. Well, our prayer time is a pretty good segue, I think, into the message today. I've titled it, Great Faith That Changed a Life Forever. Great Faith That Changed a Life Forever. Now, uh, let's stand together and read our text. We're in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21 through 28. Somewhat of a a short section, but some very powerful truth in all of this. So Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district, district of, of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. All right, amen. Please be seated. You know, over the years of pastoral ministry and just being a Christian, I've had the really unique and and, uh, privileged opportunity, sometimes rare opportunity, of of hearing people's needs and and the kind of help that they're looking for. A lot of times uh, people, and I don't mean to be negative about this, but a lot of times people are looking uh, to God for just that. They just want his help. They have, have a need and they come to the ends of their rope, so to speak, and they just look to him to meet that need. Uh, then there are others, though, who really want the Lord himself. They're really looking to him to meet the need. And I hope you can see the distinction there a little bit. And we'll talk about that more as we go. I think what's interesting about both people is that there is a need there, but there's a really big difference. It may sound subtle to you, but it's more than that. Uh, The first comes kind of with that idea of God is like a genie in a bottle. If I just rub the lamp long enough or I, let's use the Bible in this case, if I maybe just read some of the Bible, if I go out of my way a little bit more to emphasize the spiritual, then God will certainly hear me and he'll take care of what I really need him to take care of. There's that kind of person. And the other one, I think, in all of this is that person who comes just out of total desperation, knowing and understanding it's not about them and what they can do. They just know that they need the Lord, and he is the only one that can help them. And I think that is true in the nature of faith. In other words, that's really the nature of faith itself, the second part, that second person, because true faith is not based in something out there. True faith is based in someone. That's a big difference. The real faith in, that God is looking for is people who are basing their hope and their trust in him. And in this particular case, of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could say that through all, all of this. And that's really what we see from this particular situation between the woman and the disciples and Jesus, this latter person that we're talking about. Let me first give you the context here, though, because as Matthew gives it to us, he says Jesus leaves where they were. And you remember the, everything that we've studied so far as he's traveling around. And he, he goes now to these two places called Tyre and Sidon. So let me just show you this on the screen. I don't have my pointer here, but hopefully a couple of these will be clear enough where you can see them. They're the ones in the red up here. You'll notice the Sea of Galilee down in the bottom portion of the screen, Capernaum, Nazareth. That's where Jesus has been doing most of his ministry at this point. But now Matthew tells us he goes up into this region. Okay, can we see the next screen there, Christy? Um, A little smaller. Sorry about that. You'll see the two dots up in the part. Notice if you can see this, it says Phoenicia. Okay, some of your Bibles might refer to her as a Syrio-Phoenician woman. King James might use that translation. Um, And then you see Israel there in the lighter green. Okay, to the next screen. I've circled these two cities in the upper section there because 
if you notice, that whole region now is what you and I would know as Lebanon. Okay? So it was a different area, and we don't need to show the last one. I think it's just a, a, just a picture there. I just want you to have a visual in your eyes, in your mind. I'm that way. If I, if I have a visual of something, I can kind of put it together better. Well, Matthew doesn't say it in these words, but really Jesus left his ministry area there around the Sea of Galilee for a little R&R. I mean, he needed a break. In fact, we know that because Mark says this in chapter 7, 24, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Okay, now that sounds similar to what's been happening as his time has not yet been made available to him yet, but there was a more of a purpose in all this because the growing pressure that he was under. And you know that, you've been following along. He was under the pressure of uh, the people. Uh, he was under certainly the pressure of the religious leaders. Uh, he was now under the pressure of Herod, who believed he was a reincarnated John the Baptist, or a resurrected John the Baptist. And so he needed some physical refreshment, and I, I personally like that. <laughs> it helps me know that it's okay to take a vacation. It's okay to distance yourself a little bit from the pressures of spiritual life. If our Lord saw it needed in his own life, then that certainly tells us that we can do the same thing. That doesn't mean we abandon the Lord, but that it's okay to take a little bit of a spiritual refreshment. Uh, but he also needed to be with the, his 12 companions. It was going to be a great teaching time for him uh, in his rest. And so he went to Tyre and Sidon because those two cities, and this is why I showed you on the map, they were outside of Israel. And so that made it outside of the reach of Herod. Herod wasn't able to get to him there. It was Gentile territory, or when we use the word Gentile, when you see that in the scripture again, just for those of you who may not know, it's referring specifically to non-Jews. And so Jesus was outside of the boundaries of Israel. And you've heard Jesus speak about these two cities before, especially back in chapter 11, as we studied those verses, specifically in verse 21. This is what he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I didn't read this particularly last time when we were in chapter 11, but I want to read something from a commentary that helps us understand a little bit more about these two cities and what God was referring to there in chapter 11. So the writer says, Tyre and Sidon epitomized pagan Gentile corruption and worthlessness. The people in those cities were descendants of the ancient Phoenicians, the renowned seafaring merchants and colonizers of the Mediterranean. Both cities were typical seaports noted for their immorality and godlessness, even by pagan standards, and were deeply involved in the licentious Baal worship. A king of Tyre was so proud and evil that Ezekiel used him as a picture of Satan in Ezekiel 28. The city's violence, profanity, pride, injustice, greed, and immorality were so excessive that the Lord destroyed it in Ezekiel. We're told this uh, through verses 16 through 28. Jeremiah 25 also references this. And it even sold many of God's own people into slavery, according to Amos chapter 1 and verse 9. Okay, so these are two really, really bad news places. And so when Matthew refers to her as a Canaanite, just understand that that was part of the region that God had originally instructed Moses to go in and capture, but didn't capture all of it. Okay, so some of these people still remained. But I think looking into the kind of cities that these two were helps us understand this woman a little bit better, and especially how she's approaching the Lord really speaking of her faith, because as a Gentile, she wouldn't have had the training that most Jewish men certainly would have had and the women picking up what their families had brought to them in the training of God's law and really no understanding of the prophecies of who Jesus is, which leaves an interesting place for her because as far as we know, according to Matthew and the gospel writers, she must have just known about Jesus through the word of mouth, like everybody else was hearing about him, because good news or travels fast, or news of these kinds of things that Jesus was doing certainly would travel fast. And evidently, 
by her reaction that we see here in Matthew, she knew that Jesus was more than a man. I mean, Jesus was doing things that nobody else could do. You know, there were people that were faking what they would do, but there were no one, was no one who could do what he did. And you see her differentiation of who he is by the way she addresses him. Notice in verse 22, she calls him Lord. Now that's a very powerful word. It can be used in different ways in the Greek language, but traditionally it's really referring to somebody who's superior than anyone else. Master, somebody who's supreme in authority. And obviously, just by reasoning through this and the the situation that we're given, she recognizes him as God. So the really thing is that however she heard about Jesus, the Holy Spirit had opened her eyes to him. And there's scriptures to help us to understand that, that no man comes to the Father except through Jesus, but no man understands the things of God except the Holy Spirit opens his or her eyes. And so the Spirit of God was working in this woman unbeknownst to her. And because her eyes were open, she also saw herself. Okay, and I want you to kind of focus on this for just a second. Jesus was doing something really marvelous in this woman. She had no knowledge of that. But she was understanding that there was something about him that was very different. But Jesus wanted her to learn about herself as well. And that's kind of lost in this. We often see Jesus' response to her. And we'll get to this again in a minute. We often see his response to her as being cold and callous. But just hold on to that thought. Just understand that God loves people. And he wants them to have true faith. Real faith of what we talked about in the beginning. And to do that, he had to help her see her sinfulness, which is what really happens when people come into the presence of the Lord. Now, a lot of people come into the presence of the Lord, okay? But what I'm talking about is when a person comes to Christ for who he really is, they will change. They will change because they will see their sinfulness in light of who he really is. That was the cry of Isaiah. If you go with me to Isaiah 6, again, you can look on the screen. Very familiar passage. Isaiah is brought into the temple. He sees an amazing sight here in verse 1. It was the year that King Uzziah's death. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So Isaiah is having this, this vision like none other. And he's lofty and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't have to teach through this, but just understand that that was important in the dialogue here because the train of the king, the length of the train and the beauty of the train would symbolize the the majesty of the king. And he says it filled the temple. Seraphim or angels stood above him, each having six wings. And with two, speaking of the angel, covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is just hearing this resounding and echoing through the chambers of the temple as he's envisioning this. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. Isn't that a beautiful personification? The very foundations of the threshold of the temple trembled. And Isaiah's response here in verse 5 is just amazing. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's an amazing picture, really, when you think about Isaiah. I think, in a lot of ways, this woman was kind of having that kind of approach. I can't say fully that, but by her responses, I think you see this. But at least for Isaiah... He's making the point for us is that when he really saw who the Lord is, he saw himself. And one of the reasons that most people don't fully invest themselves in the life of the Lord is because they don't fully see him for who he is. That gets back to the relationship issue. This life that we're living is not just about doing something for the Lord. It's not about fulfilling his commandments. It's not just about living for him. It's about knowing him. 
It's about having a relationship with him to the point where we want to serve him because of our relationship. And Isaiah, in his relationship with the Lord and his encounter with this vision of the Lord, sees him beyond all things that anybody could ever imagine. And in that, he first sees his own heart. Whoa, he is so different from me. He's high above everything else. And so back to the woman now, with all that setting, I think out of her great need, she certainly cries out for mercy, but she goes to the one who is the only one who can really help her. Now, I just want to give you several points here this morning that are going to help us to see and learn a few things about what faith is really all about and what God is looking for in faith. Number one, great faith is founded upon who Jesus is. I've already alluded to all of that, but let's just delve into that just a little bit more. Let me just reiterate some of the same things. Great faith is not looking for something from Jesus. That's important. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't willing and capable of providing things. We've seen that already in Matthew's writing. Jesus was very gracious, and he would provide for people who didn't understand what they were even looking for because he's just a good God. But great faith, which is what he refers to in this woman, is different. True living faith is not just getting something from Jesus, but it is a heart that is surrendered to Jesus. And I hope you note that in your mind. I guess we could say repentance is the product of that faith. Repentance is the turning away from our sin. We see our sin in the presence of the Lord and it becomes the product of faith. In other words, faith comes first in who the Lord is and then turns the heart to repentance from the sinful self. I see you, therefore I see my own heart, and then I know I need to repent. That was Isaiah. That's what we heard in him. And all of that causes us to turn in or should turn from our ability to trust in ourselves to turning to him for everything. That's why I was beginning our prayer time with don't forget that God himself is the one who can fix anything. He can do it. No matter what your need is, no matter what my need is, no matter what's going on in the state of our nation or the state of the world, God can fix it. He has that ability. I suppose if we said this In a different way, we would say true faith is not true faith unless it is founded first upon repentance. Isaiah could have said, oh, that's a nice picture. Or, wow, look at that. And he would have had a sense of belief. But again, his first response was to repent. Which is, again, what I was illustrating in the beginning of the message with the people that I've had the opportunity to talk with over the years. Some people put their faith in what God can do for them or what the church they feel like should do for them because they're a church. And often people will say that. You're a church. You should help me. Right? You belong to God. You should help me. But they don't really want Jesus. They just want their needs met. Jesus is looking for hearts that want him. But to have him, there must be faith, which also must have repentance. A heart that says, I'm tired of doing life my way. I'm not going to do life my way anymore. I'm tired of trying to do my own thing. I'm going to give up my desires, my hopes, my dreams for what he wants. That's looking to him instead of just what we get from him, which is again illustrated by this woman. The difference in this woman was she wanted Jesus. Not just his help because she had a need. Most people are in real need, but again, they just want what he can give them. And so that's number one. It has to be founded upon that. Secondly, faith only becomes great when it is challenged by God. This is tough, but this gets us into an explanation of where Jesus was in his response to her. Notice in verse 23, which was nothing, he did not answer her a word. I hope you'll put yourself in this scene for a minute. Let's pretend that you're the woman. Let's imagine that you are the one who has a child who is demon-possessed. In fact, Matthew says cruelly demon-possessed. Now, I have to take that to mean, as we've said in the past, that every person, and I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but every person who is not born again, somebody who does not have the Spirit of God living in them, can be and usually is demon-possessed at any given point in their life. 
because there's no spirit to keep the demons out. And so that demonic influence can be small, it can be very minimal, or it can be cataclysmic. It can completely take over a person. I had a conversation with somebody this week who had told me that when they were young, they started involving themselves after having been brought up in the church, they had started involving themselves in the occult and said after not too long, they began to change drastically to the point where it seriously affected their minds. And that's what the power of the demonic world has the ability to do. And we've seen that with Matthew as Jesus has cast out demons out of the demoniacs. If you remember that when he was in the region of the Gadara. And so those people who cry out to the Lord need something from him that's true. But what really needs to be happening is they need him. And so if you're that person and you realize that you need him, Listen to what God says. Jeremiah 29, God is always listening, even though it seems like he's not listening to this woman. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And that's yes to Israel. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and you will search for me with all your heart. Psalm 66 16 through 19 says, Come and hear all who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words, for people who purposefully deny and reject him and want to live in their sinfulness, God will close his ears to that. But certainly God has heard, and he has given heed to the voice of my prayer. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence. I love this. This is from the Apostle John, the man who walked with Jesus. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So I think the truth is, beloved, is Jesus is dealing with this woman. It's not that she, he doesn't know she has a need. God knows all things. But there is this time of testing that needed to come into her life. And so I think we could say when we don't hear from God, it's because he's doing something in us bigger than we understand. Because he loves us. He wants to make us who he wants us to be. And that's because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And there's lots of scripture for that. I won't take time to go through those. Just understand that God knows all about us and he knows us because he created us. He's the author of everything. And he also knows that usually... Our requests for help are to get us out of the pain we're in. That's not wrong. Certainly that's not wrong. But usually our requests of him is to get rid of the discomfort that we feel in that particular situation or for the person that we love. And so when all else fails, we turn to the Lord and we say, get us out of this mess, which is what we really want. We really just want to go back Typically, not all the time, but typically we want to just go back to the life of comfort and life of ease. But listen to James on this. He says in chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, Jesus, excuse me, James is really attacking the heart there. I think that's what the Lord is doing with this woman. He's wanting to kind of peel her heart open to herself like an orange would be peeled open and expose the inner parts of it. He wanted to do something bigger in her than she really understood, and her mind was the need for her daughter. And that's a good need. There's nothing wrong with the needs. There's nothing wrong with coming to the Lord for the needs. But the Lord wants more than that from us. And so he will challenge us to see, to show us what's really in our hearts. Because you realize, beloved, Timing for God is nothing, right? God doesn't miss an opportunity. In other words, he doesn't hear a prayer from you and then later come back and say, I did not see that. You know, you sent the text message to me, but I just totally missed it. Or you sent me the voicemail, but I didn't get it. I, somehow my computer froze, you know, and I just didn't get that email. 
That never happens with God. He is perfect in all that he does. And so what he wants for us is to let go of what we think we need and let him determine what's best for us because he is our creator. And what he really wants in all of our life is to simply trust him. That's why Solomon could end his letter of Ecclesiastes by saying, here's what God wants, to fear him and obey his commandments. So our faith will be stronger and our hope will be in him when we do that. But the only way to get us to that point is to challenge us. And usually, and I don't like this part, but usually it's to bring the pressures or to allow the world's pressures and even our own internal pressures to come upon us until we start seeing things the way he wants us to see them. And so he was ignoring her. There's no question about that. And if you can imagine that scene, she's shouting at him, shouting at the disciples to the point where they get irritated. But he's just completely ignoring her. But he's not trying to be cruel. That's a tough lesson to learn. I get that in all of this. But when we learn this from him, you find that you're really greatly blessed, that God wants to do something bigger in us than we can understand. Paul said it this way in Romans 5.3, we also exalt in our tribulations. Now, your first encounter with the Apostle Paul, you might read this and go, who is this fruitcake? Who would say they would glory in their problems? That sounds like some kind of psycho. But listen to what he says, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Isn't that what everybody wants? We want hope, don't we? Even as we get older or whatever our lives are going through, we want the hope that things are going to be okay. But this is the path that the Lord has us on. And verse five, Paul says, hope doesn't disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So great faith comes from putting our hope in God. It's all the same subject, not just getting out of your situation. That's the easy way out. And when your hope is totally on him, it really doesn't matter what the situation is. Because problems come and go, right? I mean, life is really not about our problems. If we're honest, we would say life is really about how we deal with the problems. You and I have no idea what problems are going to come our way. We don't need to get lost in the problem itself. What we need to get lost in is the one who can help us through the problem. Paul said it this way to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Yes, certainly there are times we're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we know we're not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is everything to us. He's talking about himself and his companions. And and is talking to the church here so that the church in Corinth begins to understand these truths. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus suffered through the tribulations of this life. And he in turn wants you to experience those pressures, not similar to his, but like his in a way so that we will understand him even better that he is capable of all things. For we who live and are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You know, the Apostle Paul so understood these truths that he was willing to even go to his death to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Not because he wanted something from the Lord, but because he wanted the Lord. He wanted his relationship with the Lord to be second to none. Now, to make you feel better, if you're sitting there thinking, boy, I'm not like the Apostle Paul, um, be in good company because you're very similar to the 12. Notice here in verse 23, his disciples came and implored him saying, send her away. Now, 
you have to read into this a little bit because you can imagine the scene. They're exhausted with this woman barking out in their minds negatively, Jesus, help me. Lord, help me. But he's ignoring her, and so they get irritated. Evidently, she's coming up to them probably. But Jesus answers them and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's a very interesting statement. What's he really saying? Well, I think he's doing two things. One is he wants the disciples to remember and be aware. He's not, because they're now in uh, Tyre and Sidon outside of Israel, he wants them to remember, I remember, or he remembers, having forgotten my, my purpose. I know what my father has sent me to do to fulfill the covenant promise to Abraham, and that is to come to my own people. So kind of like saying, okay, boys, don't miss it. I haven't missed it. I know what I'm doing. Hang in there with me. I think that's part of what he's doing there. But I think he also wanted to do something in their hearts. And, you know, he was always dealing with them. He had them in his inner circle. And so at this point, though, they're probably thinking, wow, he's our king, because they're still thinking of him as the king of the nation, not the king of the world. He's our king. He's ignoring this Gentile woman, so it's okay for us to do the same thing. And we'll just follow him that way. But I think the Lord wanted the disciples to know, know far more than that, that he's not heartless, and he certainly cares for everybody. And the next scene helps us with that, which takes us to the third point. Great faith comes from a humble heart. Notice this in verse 25. And all the while the disciples are listening to this and watching this. She came to him, began to bow down to him and say, Lord, help me. You know, three of the most powerful words that anybody could ever pray. If you struggle with what to pray and how to pray, here's a good model prayer. Lord, help me. And the Lord knows your heart. Some of the times that I've been in my most difficult times of life have been just like that. You can't, in those moments, you can't formulate a lengthy prayer. You can't put it together theologically proper. And so you just come out with, Lord, help me. And that's the prayer of this woman. So the depths of your heart are not looking for him to just do something for you, even though he knows what you need. The depths of your heart are acknowledging him as the Lord of your life. And so even though the Lord first ignored her, she could have dropped her request. I mean, she could have just said, oh, fine. You're really like that group of people that follow you. You know, those people that we call Christians now who often turn their eyes and their hearts away from people when they cry out to help because they're just an irritation to us. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus could have been considered like that. So much for your God. I mean, what's this all about? Your message of love and grace and mercy. And you're not going to help me. You're just like everybody else who's religious. But the Spirit of God was working in her mind and heart to help her to see beyond all of that. And so she came in true faith. And this faith is the one that we've been talking about that perseveres in the difficult times because it's not looking for something. It's looking for someone. I want to keep reiterating that. Even when it seems like God is not listening. That's faith. Faith says, I know you're there. I know that you're just doing something that I may not understand. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his eyes are open to their cry. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now you would think that the story would end right there and Jesus would give in because who wouldn't want to hear a prayer like that, right? Who wouldn't want to hear a request like that? But he pushes her a little bit more. Notice verse 26. It's not good to take the children's bread to throw it to the dogs. What's Jesus really saying there? Hey, listen. Gentile woman, you understand if you know who I am and say who you know who I am, you need to know that I came for the house of Israel. That was my purpose. And again, like before, it wasn't to demean her or to ridicule her, 
but to help her to see her own heart. Basically asking her to examine herself, what are you, what are you really doing here? Why do you keep shouting at me? Why are you calling out for me? Why are you following me? Why are you saying, Lord, help me? He knew. He didn't need an explanation. But he wanted her to know. And it's a similar question for us. Why do we go to the Lord? What are we really looking from, for, uh, from him? What do we want? Again, the Lord is able to do anything. Right? What he wants is for you to know what you're asking for. Do you want something from him or do you want him? It's a big difference. He does this similar, actually did this similarly or would do this later to Peter, the same kind of thing. You're very familiar with this in John 21. This is after he has been crucified and resurrected When they had finished breakfast, this is in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then tend my sheep. Now, you've been through studies like this before. If you've not, just understand that there are two different words here for love that are being used in this section. In John, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him with a total commitment. That's what he's asking him. So in our language, we have love, which can't really be distinguished with like the Greek can. In this, though, he's asking for a total commitment. And Peter responds first, though, with a Greek word for love that signifies not necessarily a total commitment. Kind of like, you know I like you a lot. That kind of thing. And so Jesus pushes him. Even knowing that Peter had failed him in the past, Peter, probably remembering all of that, I can't imagine that he wasn't, reluctantly says that he was totally committed But the problem was Peter's life didn't really support that. He wasn't really living his life the way his words were saying he wanted to. But the beauty of that scene with Peter is is that Jesus wasn't concerned about his failures. And I hope you hear that. The Lord is not concerned with our failures. Are they an issue in his own heart at some point? Of course they are. Does God remember them? Of course he does. But he doesn't hold them against us. He loves us. And Peter becomes a great example of that. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What he wants and wanted from Peter was total commitment, period. Nothing added, nothing taken away. Not based on anything else. And that's what Jesus was doing with this woman. And the Spirit of God helped her to discern this. Because listen to what she says, yes, Lord, to his, com- his comment about Israel and the crumbs. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Boy, what a statement of humility. Do you see this woman's heart? She knows she's nothing. She's at the end of her ropes dealing with this daughter of hers and no telling what else in her life. No telling what kind of failures and mistakes she had made. No telling what kind of ungodliness she had lived under. Probably a pagan worshiper herself herself of Baal in all of that immorality and idolatry. And I don't know that for a fact, but from the land that would probably make sense. She understood that she wasn't worthy for his help. It wasn't about her worthiness. That's the point. We don't come to Jesus for our worthiness. We come to Jesus because of our unworthiness. Because we know we need him. Again, not because we need something from him. That is what distinguishes the true believer from the false believer. Jesus said that in the, there's coming a day where 
many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he's going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. Those are the people that are looking to do or be or have something from him. God wants people who want him. And he doesn't condemn us for our failures because he knows of our failures. The change is what we do with all of that. Acknowledging them. Being repentant over them. Being honest with him, with ourselves. And giving up our pride and following him. That's the way it should be for everybody. It must be that way for everybody who follows him. Totally broken. Totally repentant. Totally willing to submit to his will. No matter what he says. And notice the Lord's response in verse 28. Oh woman. Your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. His testing proved her heart. She hung in there. She bore with him. She endured the testing that he put her through. Again, none of this was for his sake. Jesus was not absent-minded. He didn't state this question first and then forget he had already asked her that. He's not like you and me. He needed and wanted her to know what was going on in her heart. And notice this, so beautiful. Immediately her daughter was healed. Immediately. So again, beloved, you know, if we're going to encapsulate all of this, we would just simply say great faith is not the result of some knowledge. Gain knowledge. It's wonderful. I I try to gain knowledge. We should all gain knowledge. It's not about being a certain person or not being a certain person. It's not our striving in this life. It's not about having a good and pure heart. It's not just about being a good neighbor and living according to the laws and the commandments of God. That's all true and right and needed. Great faith. Notice Jesus refers to this as great faith comes from knowing we are helpless without him. And that he alone must be the provider of our needs, even if it means we don't fully understand what he's doing. And I know if you've lived long enough in this life, you've lived that part. There are times where you've just said, Lord, I don't understand why I'm having to go through this. I don't understand what this is all about. I don't understand, maybe some of you are saying, why this has to linger so long. Why can't we just be done with this? Well, the Lord knows. And he simply wants us to trust him. Remember what John, Jesus said in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He will not, no matter what has happened in life. And I think, again, this woman becomes a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus. What appears in our human minds to be something of an irritation to him becomes one of the most beautiful displays of his grace and his mercy because he really cared about her more than anybody. Okay, well, let's pray together. And that's a good time for us to begin to think about our own hearts. Hopefully you've been doing that as we come now to this time of the month of celebrating the communion table and fellowship with him. That's what this is all about. I hope you hear, beloved, that this time, monthly, however often it's done, is not just some ritual we go through. You're not looked at more favorably because of taking part in this. And I'm talking about by God. You take part in this because you have him in your heart. And you trust and believe in who he is and what he has done. And so let's pray. And then we're going to do as we've been doing. Come up and if you'll just each section will just go around and pick up and go back to your seat. Come down the middle aisle first and make your way around the side. And there'll be these men here to help you. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for the the testimony of this woman. Lord, we thank you that even though she grew up in a pagan land, a land that was so opposite everything that you want for your people, your spirit opened her heart and she responded. She listened to the pushing. She endured the testing of this, this moment, this scene. She fought against all of the forces that were at work against her. 
by your power because she just wanted you. And she knew that you had the ability to heal her daughter. Lord, may we come just that way. As we approach the communion table this morning, may we bring our needs, the longing of our hearts, the deep things internally that maybe nobody else knows, that we've never shared with anybody. We thank you, Father, that you know it all. And we thank you that in this moment, we're reminded that it was you who came in spite of us. You came because we were so desperately needy that there was no one else that could help us. And so we come with open hearts, repentant hearts, hearts full of faith, humble hearts, asking you to glorify yourself through us, that we may put on display your amazing work to the world who so also desperately need you. So we thank you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Hamp plays, why don't you just now just get up? And uh, if you feel led of the Lord to come, and you've got a couple options there as usual, take part in the cracker. And as you go back, we'll read these verses together. I don't know what this time in heaven will look like as we're approaching the throne of grace. But can you imagine just this scene in heaven as the Lord Jesus is welcoming, well, allowing us to come into his presence. Sorry, I can't speak this morning. And uh, enjoying his company and all that he provides. It's going to be a beautiful time. Paul writes, I received from the Lord, which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread We'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take part in that little cracker, if you will. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So take part in that, if you will. And verse 26 is really the purpose of all of it. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, I hope this morning as you examine yourself that you'll hear verses like this and what we've read from Matthew today and, and really at times challenge yourself. What do I really believe? You know, there comes a time in every person's life where the Lord approaches us and asks us a very similar question to what he asked Peter. Who do you really say that I am? And we'll often give a response. Who do you say that I am? I hope you'll ponder that question. If you have any doubts about who the Lord really is, let's talk about it and get it right. I had a great privilege just this week, and I'm sorry to belabor the point, but it's a great illustration. One of our Hispanic deacons um, has a son who's very troubled with the things of life. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We stood out in the hallway after um, some conversation and trying to help him with some things. And um, this young man looked at me and he said, Pastor Bruce, uh, I want to have a life better with the Lord. What do I need to do? Do I need to go to church more? Do I need to read my Bible more? 
What do I need to do? And he's been greatly, greatly tormented by demonic work. And he said, and I said to him, I said, you don't need to do anything. You just open your heart and let the Lord Jesus come in. Ask his forgiveness and trust him. And he will give you new life and he'll free you. And I said, would you like to do that right now? He said, yeah. So right there in front of Pastor Hamp's office, he bowed his head and I led him just through a simple prayer. And I said to him, I said, now listen, it's not about me. I'm the preacher, but it's not about me. I'm just giving you some words to think through. And I led him through a very simple prayer. And I said, I just want you to repeat these from your heart to God. And so he did. And he came up and just kind of took a big breath like that. And I said, did you mean that from your heart? He said, yeah. He says, I feel so much better. And I said, praise the Lord. And so we'll see. In my humanness, you know, we wonder, we question. But the Lord knows the heart, right? And he's in the business of changing people. So if that's you, uh uh-oh, 25 minutes is up. (laughs) Get the the license out, the ordination out. The police are here. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So with that, we'll be done. (laughs) All right. Well, let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this morning. And uh, thank you for the testimony of, of, of you. Thank you that you've left us a written record of your changing power. Lord, help us to remember that as we read this book, we're not just reading some novel or some fictitious story, but we're reading the actual events of life, people's lives, whom you encountered and who you changed so greatly. Lord, may we be examples to the world of lives that were changed. And so help us now as we go out into this world. I know we will be greatly tempted, greatly challenged this week. But we pray that you would fill us and remind us of these truths and that we just hang in there and continue to follow you because we want you, not just something from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Lord's blessings to you. Have a wonderful day and the rest of your week.